Just a quick word of warning before we get going that the following podcast will almost certainly contain spoilers and may also contain strong language and conversations of an adult nature. Welcome to Strong Language and Violent Scenes, the podcast given a second chance to films that might not deserve them. I'm Mitch Bain, I'm a lapsed horror writer and an occasional doer of musical things. And I'm Andy Stewart, podcaster now. Sometimes I make disgusting short films. You sure do. And joining us this evening, he is the director of such films as May, The Woman and Kindred Spirits and many more. It's Lucky McKee. Lucky, good evening. Thanks for having me. Thank you for doing this. Yeah, man. It's always fun to talk about movies. Specifically this one, you have chosen Brian De Palma's Passion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so why this one? Because you were decisive about this. So why, why this one? Because like there were no other contenders. Well, no, sure. There's, there's plenty of contenders. But I think with a lot of the great directors, uh, they get later into their career and they're working over a lot of the same, you know, a lot of ideas that from the beginning of their career and they're, you know, trying to give it new life. And I think that if, if any other director made this movie, like say if a new director came out with this movie, I think it would be looked at in a kinder light. I think that happens to a lot of directors because a lot of the, the great directors bring a lot of baggage into a film that I think is perceived by film fans. So, and I think that, you know, oftentimes their later films get overlooked. And when there's a lot of really, really good juicy stuff going on there, you know, so um, I'm, you know, and I'm a, I'm a huge De Palma fan. You know, I look at every film of his kind of in the context of his body of work. Um, and I just thought that this is just like a really cool, um, very simple, but but very, very cool, very elegant kind of entry in his erotic thriller, kind of like that aspect of the films he make, which I think are like the best Brian De Palma films, you know? It's certainly erotic. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was going to yeah. be my first question. I was kind of operating under the assumption that you came into this as a De Palma fan. And as a kind of general kind of uh, advocate for his body work. Yeah, and I, I think I think one of the one of the things that a lot of people maybe find off putting with De Palma is his use of melodrama, his use of music, and his use of like a heightened reality. It, it's not you know these these films are not about realism at all. You know they're they're about cinema and they're about an idea. You know and you very much feel his hand in everything he does, and it's just it's just fun to go on the rides that he takes us on. You know I love most of his films. I completely agree, Ref. This film definitely like I think that uh this film has no interest in being straight laced in almost any sense of the word i think that the whole thing feels very elevated and very bracing and very melodramatic in a way that i think is really fun andy yeah had you seen this before let me tell you much and lucky just for a bit of background for yourself the way this podcast i think we're, yeah. we're approaching 130 main episodes of this show we have an, another episode on a monday uh-huh. so we're we're, we're kind of getting close to the 300 episodes mark for the most part, wow. I've seen most of the things that guests bring on before. But we've had this weird kind of run recently where we've had a bunch of guests come on with a bunch of kind of eclectic titles and I haven't seen them. And the same is true for Passion. I'm a big De Palma guy as well, but weirdly, I don't know I, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's that thing you were talking about where I'm so attached to old De Palma films and the kind of classic stuff. Uh, like, sisters and carrie and uh like even raising cane and blowout and stuff like that but i yeah. i haven't really dug too much into a later era de palma 
And I think that's yeah. true here because this was a first watch for me. That's great. I mean, is, is that a good thing? <laughs> did you, I mean, did, did you see merit <laughs> well, in it? Or, well, or did, would it just seem like bonkers to you? Because a lot of people think it's all over the place. And to me, it, it seems pretty tight, you know? And again, it's one of those things where, you know, he has worked in this space so much and he's, he's, he's worked at such great heights in this yeah. space, mm-hmm. you know? And it, he did the same thing kind of in Femme Fatale where it's like he mm-hmm. starts to kind of like really kind of stretch and bend where these kind of stories can go just to kind of keep it fresh for him, you know? Uh, and the way he uses uh, hallucinations and dreams and all this, you know, and, and even that split screen, screen sequence to kind of throw you off. Uh, I think all that stuff is just like so fun. And it's just, it just feels like he's playing, you know, and it feels, I think very, especially with later De Palma, you can kind of feel the budgets definitely aren't what they used to be. Sure. And, yeah. the, mm-hmm. you know, and in the case of the last movie, Domino, I mean, clearly somebody just took it out of his hands and just <laughs> chopped the shit out of it, you sure. know? And there's yeah. these little glimmers of De Palma-esque stuff that has that kind of pure feeling. But I feel like Passion is the last one that just feels like no one was in his way creatively. You know, he may not have been working at that high, you know, I think he felt like his high watermark was was Carlito's way, where he where he had everything he could possibly need to make that movie um all all the toys you know um (laughs) but i I like i like this european phase you know i think femme fatale is is overlooked maybe not quite as overlooked as as something like passion but you know i mean you you watch my films and you can kind of understand why i like this thing i mean the themes in there and the the strong female lead characters Mm -hmm. and uh you know this this kind of backstabbing corporate sort of backdrop that the whole thing has going for it I just think it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I've got you know, it. I've I got just, it. I feel, I feel like it's a direct a, a, a guy that's like semi-retired, just having a fucking blast. You know. <laughs> yeah. uh, so it's what we all aspire to, Lucky. Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I feel like making this is like a great retirement. Yeah. We ask everyone that comes on the show to do one thing, and it is uh, designed to be for the benefit of anyone who is listening who hasn't seen the film, mm-hmm. of which there are often kind of many. So Andy is going to put 30 seconds on the clock. Andy, do we have 30 seconds? We absolutely do. Lovely. So, uh, Lucky, I'm going to count you in, and what we're going to ask you to do is try and give us your best 30-second synopsis of Passion. Oh, whether... God, I'm terrible at that stuff. <laughs> I'm terrible at that stuff. <laughs> it's like, whether you want to run this right through to like the absolute ending, or if you want to do like kind of an elevator pitch or some scene setting is entirely up to yourself but you've got 30 seconds to do what you please three two one go passion is a film about two women who work in the corporate uh ad- advertising world and uh it follows rachel mcadams and numi rapace uh rachel mcadams is the you know the the head of the you know the the boss the boss in the situation and numi rapace is, is the girl that works under her and it's just about them you know like navigating through this world and one trying to stay on top of the other and it just you know it gets sexy and thrilling along the way like Time. i said I'm, I'm not i'm not i'm not very good at uh at doing that type of thing. That's why I don't live in Hollywood. I'm not a pitcher. Lucky, honestly. <laughs> I, 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 like to, I like to write stuff down. and, and uh... <laughs> I'm not going to lie, man. We've had a lot worse than that. We've had, oh, yeah, had, yeah. I mean, we've I'm, had a lot. We've always had... been terrible. It literally, it gives me anxiety to have to. to do like that. <laughs> in, that, in that case, I'm sorry that we made you do that. I don't think anybody's green lighting that pitch. But... I, th- I think you're still in the top 50% of people that have done that. That's going catastrophically <laughs> hey, for there you go. before it. There you so, go. There you nah, go. You're doing fine. You're doing fine. Yeah, I think that we should just just uh, kind of jump right into this because I like I had no idea what to expect with this. So, lucky what we're saying, Andy has seen most things. The counterpoint to that is that I have seen almost nothing, <laughs> um, or at least that you, I, I kind of. You mean I, you mean you mean almost nothing De Palma related or just oh no, in general? Like, nothing. 
um just in general like um that that i came to horror and uh and kind of genre movies and cinema in general far later on than a lot of people who are on the show do you know like i like i don't have the same stories about being kind of like film obsessed when i was like six or seven years old or anything like that it's like uh so i'm working backwards with a lot of things well we're we're, uh, we're similar in that in that way in terms of me up till up till i went to film school i mean i, I lived in a very rural area growing up so i had very little access to films so a lot of my, I was playing a lot of catch up <laughs> in okay. those film school years. You know, there were so many films that people have grown up on. And, I, and you know, my whole world opened up when I went to film school. Okay. Um, I, mean, I was just devouring stuff. So I understand what it feels like to feel like, oh my God, how, you know, how can <laughs> certain people have seen all of these things and have such an encyclopedic knowledge of it, you know? I'm just a pure thought. Yeah. <laughs> and like, and yeah, I have to co-host the show opposite Andy, who's seen everything. So like, um, it's 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 kind of become this kind of happy accident that Andy's seen everything, and I've seen like more than I saw two years ago when we started doing this, but still not a great deal. <laughs> that's good. That's good. You bring you bring a fresh perspective to this. You know, a lot a lot of the people in in the genre world, you know, like really pride themselves on their deep cut knowledge of stuff. Um, I'm I'm in awe of it. I love that. I love talking with people like that. But I do I, I do understand that feeling of feeling a little. <laughs> a little behind the curve on some stuff. It's the chi- it's, it's Mitch's childlike wonder that kind of draws <laughs> the listeners in. <laughs> exactly. exactly. It's a, it's quite comforting to hear that. I must say. So uh, so in in this in this case, have you not seen a lot of Brian De Palma films? So I really haven't. No. Oh, um, that's cool. See, that's exciting though. That, that you've got so much amazing shit to discover. You've definitely seen Carrie. Uh, yes, one hundred percent. I think, but like, yeah, I have so many conversations of this ilk with people where they kind of they're where I describe the things that I haven't seen, and they're like, "Oh, I'm really envious that you are yeah. able to yeah. go and find these things," which is nice. And I think that it's actually like a uniquely horror community thing that people aren't kind of gatekeepery about that. People are just kind of very like the wonders that are in front of you kind of thing right yeah, yeah. um weirdly the two Brian De Palma films that I can flag up as immediately as that I've definitely seen are Carrie and Phantom of the Paradise oh wow interesting yeah okay. that's that's a wild that's a wild double feature right there <laughs> but this is what happens i guess when you when you come to something kind of after the fact with kind of i'll, no... I'll send i'll send you i'll send you a list <laughs> please do <laughs> after, yeah, after yeah, yeah. <laughs> but i i knew enough about him and what he does and that kind of thing to understand that there was a lot of things about this that felt kind of strange and anomalous that it kind of had this feel of this kind of smoky erotica with rachel mcadams and numi de pass and it was like what am i looking at because i obviously i'd never heard of it when you pitched it uh because yeah. ignorant in that way <laughs> and i hadn't seen it until tonight but like i did get this kind of 90s vibe to the opening sure yeah absolutely. Sure. And that's a good thing i think yeah. I'm a big fan of the the kind of erotic thriller era, like the the kind of golden period that the studios had back in the late '80s and early '90s, and they're cranking out stuff like Single White Female and The Hand That Rex Cradle and Basic Instinct, and, you know, Fate Basic Attraction. Instinct. Oh yeah, 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 just brilliant, brilliant stuff. So that's always that's always like a comfortable place for me. Like I love, you know, my movie Kindred Spirits is definitely kind of an homage to those those type of films. They they don't really make a lot of them anymore. The studios, at least. No, I mean, agreed. And you guys somehow just managed to name four films in a row that I've seen. Perfect. Strong performance. Perfect. Perfect. Um, yeah, I, I think that uh, this film sets its stall out kind of in a very obvious way right from the beginning here. I yeah. mean, um, I've got it written down as uh, Fifty Shades of The Devil Meets Prada. <laughs> The wardrobe alone is worth watching the movie. I mean, the girls, everybody in the movie just looks just fantastic. McAdams' wardrobe is incredible. And then the way it interplays with 
the setting and uh, a lot of the reds that she's wearing and everything kind of sets her up as a queen. Uh, and you, you look at the interior of her office and that structure that's outside the windows, it kind of feels like you're in a hive. I just, you know, I love the atmosphere he creates. You know, it says so much. For, for me, watching a film is, I, I'm, I'm the same way with music. I never, I, I can never hear the, like the lyrics when I, when I listen to a piece of music first, you know? I'll fall in love with the band before I have any idea what they're talking about in their songs. And cinema is the same way for me. Right. If you have somebody that has a sure hand visually, and it's almost like a silent film, somebody that's, that's just telling me a story in like a purely visual way, I soak so much of that up. That's the first thing that I soak up when I watch a film. And it's only on repeat viewings that I really start to kind of analyze what people are saying, why they're saying it, what the subtext is underneath it. And, you know, all that kind of stuff. So that's what makes it so fun for me, mm -hmm. you know. And oftentimes, if a movie doesn't have a sure visual style uh, and approach in it, or it feels like it was made by a committee or something like that, I kind of chuck out like right out of the gate. Sure. You know? mm -hmm. So again, like if you're a De Palma person and you love De Palma films, it's just nice to see something where it's like clear that he did what he wanted to do, you know, flaws and all. Like it feels purely him. Uh, and that's that's what we're all striving for, <laughs> making movies. It doesn't doesn't always work out like that. I think it's interesting as well that like you talk about kind of like you say the things that you respond to are not necessarily kind of like like you said about music. It's like it's not necessarily the lyrics and kind of with film. It's things that or hit the you. plot. The, yeah, the plot or anything. You know, like that, that's that's not really a concern of mine. You know, I just <laughs> like to be like taken by the hand and just like you know taken into somebody else's world. And like I think that like this film does a reasonably good job of that out of the gate. I, I think it's fair to say that it's like a it's a very score heavy movie oh yeah the pino danagio scoring this is amazing like from the first time you hear it it's incredibly playful and it's over the top in a way that feels very de palma i know it is de palma but it, it feels so right for what this is yeah there's like an operatic melodramatic feeling which is a which is a de palma sweet spot yeah you know mm -hmm. and, and 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 in the case of a movie like casualties of war i think that's what kept it from being perceived by audience as one of the great war films, uh, especially Vietnam war films, is the music, the use of melodramatic music, I think. And I think Carlito's Way does to a certain extent. I think that, that people just don't get it. <laughs> you know, like they don't, they don't get his sensibility there. I don't think he really connects with the audience with his use of music all the time. <laughs> but for me, it works because I know, you know, I know his stuff. This is the seventh time in Passion that De Palma worked with Pino Danagio the first time, of course, being Carrie away back then. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Like again, these are just these are just things that I don't know. These are just washing over you, aren't they? No, not at all. But like, um, <laughs> uh, but I think like this the score kind of hit me out of the gate, and it did all the way through. Like, say, I think I think that like um, it really feeds into this kind of bracing melodrama of everything else that is going on in this. Yeah, and it, well, it's helping. It's help. It's helping tell the story. You know, I mean, like you have like those scenes where, for instance, where Numi wakes up in the middle of the night and it's, you know, like this very noirish lighting and the camera's canted to the side and you're just looking at a close up of her. That without the music, like does not like the music adds an anxiety, adds like a confusion. It adds so much. It doesn't land in the same way without it. Then, oh, absolutely not. And then you get these moments where later on as the film kind of progresses and people are coming up with their own plots and schemes and their own devices to kind of get one up on each other. You get that real, yeah. But it's like yeah. this is the music for people who scheme. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Which is you know definitely a Hitchcock trademark as well. I kind of feel like we should talk about the kind of central players at least in the first half of this thing. So you've got um, Christine. Uh, played by Rachel McAdams here. I generally like her in things. I'm unsure of where sure. this sits on the timeline for her. Is this before or after, kind of like when she was 
the notebook. Like it's a little bit, a little bit after that. I think. After yeah. Movie. For the record, she fucking hates this movie. Like, <laughs> really? She, hates it. she 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 really dragged it when it came out and was just very dismissive of it. And I was like, bitch, this is one of your best fucking movies. <laughs> you know, like like, <laughs> like <laughs> you look and she looks fan. I mean, the women look fantastic in this movie. You know, and like so often you look at movies that you know like really go for a glamorous look and it just looks like a shampoo commercial or something. But these women look just like. Man, you know, he really knows how to light a subject, you know, the men and the women in the film. You know, like I said, that's like as a starting point for me in a film. If I've got a movie that I can watch that just works on a purely visual basis and I can like put it on without sound and just like have it running in the background while I'm writing or while I'm doing whatever, you know, and it's just pleasing to look at every time I look at the screen. I love that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think that if we're, if we're talking about the kind of main players here, I think you've got to talk about Christine, like you say, played by Rachel McAdams, Isabel, mm-hmm. Nimura Passa's character. Uh, her kind of like, I would say, like her kind of like protege, or there's the kind of like a mentor protege relationship going on there. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dirk. All oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Dirk. What? Oh, he has a fantastic, that guy has a fantastic voice, too. I was watching it with headphones today, and I was like, man, that guy's voice just cuts a microphone. Yeah. He, he's, <laughs> in, he's in Peaky Blinders, that guy. Oh, is he? he? I haven't seen that. Yeah, I, Properly sleazy character. I love that. Yeah, I absolutely. think it's such a bold decision to write a character with the name of Dirk. <laughs> totally, yeah. His name is fucking Dirk. <laughs> so good. That is not a name you come across often in real life. I think the only one that springs to mind is Dirk Benedict. Well, Dirk Bogard. Dirk Bogard and Dirk right, Benedict right, are the only two Dirks that I can identify that have ever lived. Right. I don't think that's in the top ten list of baby names any in, in any country. <laughs> it might be my next one. <laughs> Named after, presumably, Dirk from this film. Uh, <laughs> totally. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, Dirk, uh, Christine's partner. I think that the way that these two characters are introduced is really interesting because you understand, obviously, that Christine and Isabel have this kind of working relationship. Sure. But the film sells you on sexual chemistry between those two, like, right out of the gate. And then when Dirk turns up, and we obviously immediately realize that he's uh, Christine's partner, Isabel, like, immediately abruptly leaves. And I think that, like, it sets up so many questions and so many possible places that this can go. Well, well, it's because he's being sleazy. I mean, he just like starts making out with her, like sitting right next to each other on the couch. You know, and they're it's... basically saying like, "Hey, you want to join in?" And she's like, "Uh, <laughs> I'm you know, gonna I'm go." A, I'm actually, I'm actually good. Yeah. See, even if yeah. they if they hadn't been exchanging furtive glances, right? Which they had, so you get a, you get this immediate feeling that certainly on Isabel's part, there's something there. Even if that feeling wasn't there, you would be uncomfortable. If you could hear kissing that close in your ear, there's nothing. Like I don't know if anyone's ever watched films with headphones on when you can he- overhear people kissing. Yeah, we, my my editor and I would call it eating snacks. So <laughs> sounds like somebody's sounds, sounds like sounds like somebody's eating snacks. Uh, <laughs> it, it's it's one of my, the worst things in films for me is when someone is aggressively kissing to a level that I consider offensive. Yeah. That's understandable. I think that the way that it paints how their kind of evenings go after the splits is um, kind of funny in the the way that you see um, Isabel kind of falling asleep by herself sure. mm-hmm. uh, with her laptop in her lap wearing full body pajamas. And we cut back to uh, Christine and Dirk having this incredibly kinky sex where she pauses him <laughs> mid-fellatio when, she's wearing, when he's wearing a blonde wig Mitch, and a white fan of the opera mask. It's not fellatio. She yeah. doesn't have a penis. It's kind of lingus. Oh, sorry, Jesus. If it is cunnilingus, it's a strange position to be in. And also, I don't think that the mask that he's wearing allows appropriate space for the tongue to protrude. Yeah, it's very strange. And also, at a certain point, uh, Numi's character realizes that it's a mask of 
Rachel McAdams' face. <laughs> yeah. So basically, she likes to be fucked by herself, you know, yeah. which is fantastic. I mean, it just makes her such a narcissist. We would all fuck ourselves <laughs> if we could. I gotta say, like, when she says that, when she's like, is this a mask of her? When she puts it together, like, I hadn't. Sure. And um, and when she does that, I like I laugh out loud because it's so funny because it kind of felt like I should have. Right, okay. Yeah. So when she connects the dots before I did, like it kind of it blindsided me and it really well, made me laugh. The film does a good job there of blurring the line because the way she's lying in bed and she's kind of gazing off to her right and she's got a laptop in her lap, you have this moment where you question, is this reality or is, is she the woman under the mask? And weirdly, yeah. that's a question that you can ask later on in the film. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Um, and the way the way the way he's using you know just that opening scene for instance the way you know De Palma and a lot of great filmmakers use uh, rhyming you start the opening of the film as the back of the MacBook it tilts up to the two girls' faces and he does the same thing with the redhead at the end true. you know mm-hmm. when he kind mm-hmm. of reveals like what actually happened you know the whole end of Psycho sort of thing where it explains everything you know uh, to the audience. Uh, I just I love I love that the rhyming he does is doing it on a, in a visual way and also you know showing that this is a power play between two women and one that wants to dominate the other which is really interesting I watched I watched this John have you guys ever seen a, a film from the, I think like 1941 or so called Leave Her to Heaven no it's John Stahl movie it's like a Technicolor noir film I was watching last night about this this woman that. Uh, loves too much and she she you know she loves somebody she wants them all to herself and she does really awful things in order to to be alone with this guy that she loves and gets really obsessive and stuff so it was a it was kind of a cool thing to you know it was kind of cool to watch passion on the heels or something like that just kind of see the dna sure. for this type of film started in, in the noir era you know that's cool the next thing that we see really in this is them interacting with each other kind of professionally like in a working environment. We get a sample of Christine taking no crap from nobody in the office. Like we That's get right. she's kind of like, yeah, you know. yeah, yeah, very much so. The film sold me very hard on their relationship being this kind of very mutually supportive thing, which kind of made it all the more shocking when it kind of 180s on that. I wasn't, sh- I wasn't shocked by that at all. Maybe this is an indicator of me having not seen enough movies then. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask a question? Yeah. Isabel has this idea, right, that will make the company a fortune. Yeah. Uh, this is the big idea that's going to take yeah. them into the next level of success. It's going to put them as a bona fide contender in the market, right? But to my eye and to my yeah. ears, it seems like nothing more than a camera that goes in the pocket of your jeans. So you can then watch people looking at your ass. Right. That's the joke. I mean, I, I think it's actually based on like a real ad campaign or I, I don't know. I, I remember reading about that at a certain point, but it's, you know, it's funny, you know. I, I'm, I'm uh, into, I, I mean, I, I don't have an ass to speak of. I've got... My back, my back goes straight down. I've got an anus in the middle of my back, and then it's just my legs. I don't have an ass that yeah. people are that anyone's looking at. But it, it would be interesting to see if there was, say, a dog chasing me that I was unaware of, or a car coming up behind me that I hadn't really paid any attention to. Uh, right. Yeah, it could catch on. I mean, like, I feel like we should ground this in story for a sec because um, Isabel, <laughs> Nimi Rapaz's character, um, does have this idea where um, to sell a pair of jeans, she kind of does this ass cam thing, which uh, becomes this absolute sensation. The suits love it. <laughs> yeah. Right, and and for and for De Palma, it's one of his main themes. You know, it plays. It's it's a fun play on voyeurism. You know, what people are looking at. Uh, when they don't know they're being watched, you know? and like and and, it's, a, it's a staple in Brian De Palma films, you know. 
And like, and the montage of people that you see, kind of like, you know, like what that camera shows up. It's all, it's all kind of played off as being kind of playful and kind of fun, but it's quite creepy. Yeah. But then you've seen the videos where they they get a girl to walk down the street, and she's got a secret camera on, and you like she videos all the guys that cat call her. It's horrible. So I guess it's kind of it's kind of that. Yeah. Well, that's that's what makes it humorous. I think. Yeah. No. Like. Like. Yeah. Like. I think. I think it hits the mark with that. I would be so disappointed watching that footage back and realized that no one was looking at my ass and I just had a camera <laughs> sticking out the back of my jeans. It would be so. I'd be incredibly depressed. I'd be, yeah, going, right. I'd, I'd be going back to the shop and saying, listen, I, I don't think this is for me. There's quantifiable <laughs> evidence that no one is attracted uh, to you. Can I get out of my contract? <laughs> back right out. Um, I want to talk really quickly about Danny here, sure. who I think is probably the other key player that we need to introduce at this point, um, who is kind of the assistant, it appears, to Isabel, uh, Numi Dupas' character. Every time that she appears, certainly in the first two acts of this film, she seems to come in with uh, information about survey results or poll results or market research. Yeah. But that kind of becomes this handy way to kind of nudge the plot forward. Right. And she's all, yeah, she's also just kind of slinking in the background of everything, you know, and, you know, obviously it pays off in the end. Yeah, it's a high, it's a hierarchy, you know, it's like you have McAdams on top and then Numi and then Danny underneath that, you know, it's a power struggle between these three women ultimately yeah um a lot of people are taking some fairly high stakes gambles here because i mean <laughs> um what we have ultimately is that isabel is having an affair with dirk who is mm-hmm. obviously christine's partner given their professional relationship filming yourself doing that is high risk to say the very least definitely sure. well i don't think i don't think i don't think isabel knows that it's, it's somehow it seems like it's played that she doesn't know that she's being filmed do you think it's like a, it's, it's like a long-form plan He's, no, no, no. I don't think. There's I don't know. I don't know if it's a long form pen. I think the guy's just a perv, yeah. you know, um, which is fine. You know, a lot of people do that sort of thing, I guess. But you know, of course, McAdams. You know, she's trying to dominate everything around her. You know, including him, including Isabel. You know, yeah. and it's you know, it's just a it's a chess piece for her. Yeah. You know, there comes a point later on when she has enough pull over Duck that she can pretty much get him to provide anything that she wants to get him out of the shit and i feel like this video is part of that bargain because we do see it again later on and yeah i I don't necessarily feel like she knows and if she does she's not entirely fully aware of it i don't think she mcadams knows in the in the office scene when he shows up at the office after the board meeting and she sees how awkward those two are acting with one another she's like oh i get it you can see it you know you can just see it visually you know she understands that you know hooked up in london and then right after that you know mcadams which is a fantastic scene again very melodramatic and ridiculous in a wonderful way where mcadams is trying to get numi to tell her that she loves her and she tells her this sob story about about her her twin sister when she was a kid which is just ridiculous manipulation but so entertaining i think that entertaining is the key word and it's the through line to this whole thing mm. there's a lot of things and a lot of elements about this that feel kind of fanciful and in kind of lesser hands would feel kind of silly but i think that entertaining is the thing that kind of shackles all this together but it's yeah and it's the palma it's the way he tells the story you know what he chooses to focus on you know and just the, the elegance with which he does it i don't mean to cheapen this film at all because this isn't meant to come across as a cheap comment in any way because it's very much where my heart lies but there's so much of this that feels like i don't want to say giallo right that although there's an element yeah, of Giallo totally. later, but there's so much Definitely, yeah, yeah. that feels like 
Italian crime mystery films of the like, which is my which is a sweet spot of mine. Yeah, you know? yeah, like, mine I, I, just, I love that stuff. It floats my boat so much. Where you have the, this real metal, melodrama, this real feeling and bitterness and angriness and hatred going all over the place, and then this just real sexual horny through line, and uh, it just feels very yeah. Italian to me. And I, I respond to it a lot. Yeah, and and and, and again, in the, in the case of those films, the bot is just something to kind of hang this like really, really like operatic artistic approach. Yeah, you know, exactly. It's very rooted in very rooted in European art. Mm-hmm. Uh, you feel that tradition come through in those dirty, cheap Italian movies in the seventies and eighties. You know, <laughs> like even the early eighties. You know, you feel that like these guys, like they may have had a six person crew, but they're really swinging for the fucking fences with every shot <laughs> and they're trying to like. <laughs> pack it with some sort of meaning you know there's something really wonderful about that like i'm being going to agree what what's your what's your favorite scene in the movie i mean i, I have mine oh my I'm god curious what's your um, favorite like scene or moment moment in the movie uh and you want to take this first yeah i was just curious what what uh what scenes you know did you walk away with i mean i think with any film you walk away with a scene that kind of sticks in your brain yeah. you know yeah i would say that like you were saying the scene where christine shows the video and you, you see the, the elements of what it's like to work for this company, but it's all really just an attempt to denigrate Isabel. Uh, I think it's a really strong scene. I think the whole sequence, uh, the split-screen sequence with the ballet, Christine's party and Christine in the shower and ultimately Christine's end is an incredibly strong scene. Yeah, those are wonderful. I, the, for me, the scene that, that sticks with me is just her humiliating her at the party, you know, with the video of her losing her shit in the parking lot. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Just the cruelty there and just, you know, the, the way Mimi kind of turns it into a laugh at the end, but it's so pathetic. <laughs> it's just, it's just a horrible moment, you know? I horrible think, moment of humanity. Just There's something so vicious about that that I love. I think her response to that, though, is... The kind of response that any one of us would dream of having to something like that like for me it's either kick off and flip a table or like just storm out in tears so she kind of straddles the middle ground in a perfect way that i can only dream of yeah so wonderful and then then the the split screen sequence uh you know again like i was saying before is just you know it's classic de palma and it's also it's also messing with you kind of ultimately find out in the end because you think she's sitting in that you know sitting there watching that ballet the whole time Mm. so the time is not actually simultaneous you kind of you learn later on which i think is a really fun trick and this again is is de palma just bending and, and stretching what's actually possible to keep the audience off balance i think that a lot of the second act of this is marked by this kind of power struggle between christine and isabel because obviously you know like isabel has this great idea for the ad which christine then takes the credit for right which is kind of i would guess kind of the jump off point for the conflict between the two of them and then obviously you understand that isabel was having this affair with dirk but you're right i think that like the way that all of this culminates with i agree that the best scene in this is the kind of ritual humiliation at the party where yeah yeah she shows this incredibly humiliating sequence of isabel trying to drive out of the car park when she's delirious knowing mm-hmm. that christine's uncovered this affair and it's played off in this like light-hearted but incredibly savage way like i think that like <clears throat> that's comfortably the most convincing coalescing of all the central conflicts of the film and it sets up for a third act that gear shifts into a murder mystery in a way that i was not ready for and i think that yeah it's totally um, bizarre yeah it's so and it gets really sur- surreal and i think that there's no better way to introduce that gear shift than with the split screen ballet sequence that we just talked about which goes on for five full minutes 
It's amazing. Yeah. And like as a percentage of the film's runtime, I think it's five. <laughs> like, um, uh, yeah, like, it's a really cool thing to watch unfold. As soon as it started, I was like, oh, you know, as a first time viewer, I was like, oh, something's happening here. I didn't expect it to unfold the way that it did. And Andy, you touched on a Giallo reference earlier, and obviously it leans quite hard into that as well. But Mitch, before you get too far into this, there's a lot of kind of things that come together like and coalesce into this this one scene. Like we learn that there's this whole thing with Dirk where he is maybe kind of grifting money off the kind of off the business. He's kind of embezzling funds, and there's this discussion between Christine and Dirk where she talks about how he's running a Ponzi scheme and it's coming to an end, and that New York are after him, which all sounds very Trumpian, by the way. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's uh, hard not to think. In, in that <laughs> absolutely, and uh, I, I, I think they're both as bad as each other in terms of their ability to pull off something like this because they're <laughs> they're both bang to rights. Um, yeah. so we've got a kind of power struggle between Isabel and Christine we've got this power struggle between Dirk and Christine and a power struggle between Isabel and I guess Christine and Dirk yeah mm. so yeah and, Dan- and Danny kind of dancing around you know on the mm. fringes of that it's hard not see? to see Danny as an immediate question mark oh yeah of course yeah you know like, there's something something you need to pay attention to her you know it's it's you're given that indication really early she's higher in the credits than duck so you know that she's got a part to play right <laughs> i never never pay attention to things like that but you're right what i would say is that like i haven't seen enough movies but i've seen some so sure. when i saw the way that the danny character was introduced i was kind of like okay i need to be keeping one eye on her but i think that yeah. the way the way that she ultimately figures in it is still surprising in a cool way i think that like the way that this ultimately unfolds and we'll get to it like i don't want to dig too far into it right now but i think that like the way that she ultimately figures in it i was kind of like oh i knew she was part of it but when that reveal comes it's like oh i still didn't see that coming specifically Mm -hmm. right yeah she's vicious she's vicious in her own right you know i think that you know numi's character isabel is is the least vicious of the three you know the three women in the story you know you could tell that she's got some sort of moral center somewhere buried inside her and she's almost like putting on an act in order to keep herself moving forward but it's not natural to her it's natural to the other two women on either side of her yeah you see her battle and it is worth mentioning that in the aftermath of christine stealing her idea and then kind of really kind of shaming her at this party there is this motion by isabel to bring her vision of the jeans pocket camera to market and it's far more successful than than christine's idea yeah putting putting the thing on you know and that's another case of rhyming you know it's like where she got she gets burned early in the story by getting her idea stolen and then it flips around and she just uploads it on youtube which was i think i think that's danny's idea isn't it (laughs) yeah she uploads it and she's a wild success and she basically just spits uh christine's own words back at her like look we're all a team (laughs) you know (laughs) And then all bets are off at that point. I think that that sequence is so satisfying to look at. Like, see, as somebody who has kind of like, it's been framed in a way that I am designed to root for Isabel. Uh The scene where that happens, where she flips the script in that way, is incredibly satisfying to look at. And she's so good, man. Numi does so many little things. She's such a great lead in any any movie she's in. She just has so much power. And even, you know, you think about Numi's career, she's, you know, she's played badasses in a lot of movies. And a lot of times, in, you know, especially like the action stuff she's done a lot a lot of the a lot of the action movies female you know female driven action films are usually usually center on someone that looks like a supermodel that you know would snap like a twig if they actually got in a fight but there's something about numi's attitude and she's tiny 
but there's something about her that just like she has a toughness about her that you buy you know yeah. i think that's why her, her dragon tattoo was was the superior one just solely because of her you yeah. know you believe that she can do the thing that she does and, and to, to see her vulnerability in this movie i think was you know was a really nice contrast because she's kind of an action star in her own right mm. you know yeah. Um, yeah. but but to, to see her play like this really kind of delicate person i think is really fun she's really deft you know yeah, she's, this she's, she's also, a really skilled actress by the way 10 million views and five hours on youtube is not to be sniffed at yeah, yeah, that's, that's, yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. Who, who's watch, who's watching an arse camera that much? <laughs> that's Gangnam style numbers. <laughs> that's Baby Shark, mate. It's big time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, that's God tier YouTube stuff. Visually, you know, the movie has like this like pristine visual look the whole time, and like after that murder, it's like it becomes so surreal and so noir and so atmospheric and just. You know, it steps into the surreal zone. I mean, those interrogation scenes are just—they're just, oh my God. They're just yeah. so beautifully shot. You know, I mean, they're—they're—that's another thing that goes back to Hitchcock, which is just that use of just like subject and subject's point of view. Yeah. You know, uh, the, he does it in such a special way. It leans so heavily into point of view later on that I was just all in on it. I would have been happy for the whole entire third act of the film to play out from Nooney's point of view. But it, it, you're right in talking about yeah. about the kind of noirish influence here because it, it's everything down to the the lighting where it's just lighting someone's eyes, or occasionally it goes all in and just does the you know the kind of the horizontal blinds lighting. It's so actually it's really over the top for what this film is, but it's very De Palma. But you feel that you feel you feel that shift in a visual way, you know. Again, mm. you can watch that movie with no sound. Just put on your favorite record and put that movie on, and you can follow it. Yeah, well, see, that's right. the, that's the way I edit when I when I when I edit my films. My editor and I will will work on a scene or a sequence throughout the day, and when when we're looking back at what we've done over the course of the day, we we uh, we watch it obviously once with sound, and then we watch it with no sound. Um, okay. and we just True. see we just see if the story is being communicated in a visual way. You know, because you go back to the silent era and, you know, I mean, like that is the pure, that is such a pure art form. You know, it was almost unfortunate that sound came in when it did because they were hitting such amazing heights with visual storytelling, you know, that it kind of like knocked cinema back a couple pegs when sound came down because it locked the camera down, you know. Okay. But uh, again, you know, those are the things that I'm going for when I watch movies. And obviously I don't have... I don't have my finger on any pulse of what's, you know, what's going to be popular or not. You know, I just dig what I dig. (laughs) I kind of want to ask now, though, if you were going to watch this on mute with your favorite record on, what would be the record you would choose to accompany this, this viewing? Oh, God. Um, I'm really into this band Battles right now. Um, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever listened to Battles before. Um, it's kind of like this super group from a bunch of guys that have been in famous rock bands, but uh, it's just this incredible, jammy, like atmospheric rockin' music. I love looking at favorite films with that music playing. just energizes the cuts in a different way. and just makes you look at the film in a different way. You can learn a lot by doing that. I recommend that to any filmmaker to shut the sound off on your favorite film and just look at how the you know put your favorite record on. Um, Interesting. And see see what pops out mm-hmm. to you. You know, it's like what Guillermo del Toro calls the the great movies aren't eye candy; they're eye protein. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> which, which I think I think is a wonderful way of putting it. We ultimately like the the second act. I think I think it's fair to say that the second act of this culminates in the murder of Christine, and the third act largely yeah. deals in the investigation and subsequent solving of her murder. The investigation, um, yeah. which is incredibly scattershot. Yeah, there's not much I, to go on. 
I know the detectives are so nice. <laughs> they feel so guilty. He, like brings her flowers when he finds out she he thinks she didn't do it. It's One guy hilarious. is an unbelievable that, asshole. The uh, prosecutor, you mean? Yeah, he is an absolute prick. I mean, ultimately, what happens here is that Christine is murdered at the culmination of like we've we've talked about this incredibly ambitious split screen ballet slash murder sequence that happens here, and I think that I think it is amazing, and I think that it's important to kind of anchor it as being what I think is like the center point of the film in terms of craft. Yeah, like I think that I think it's the most interesting sequence of the film, and uh, what you see is uh, New Media Pass's character Isabel going to the ballet, and uh, Rachel McAdams' character Christine being murdered in like what i think andy like you touched on giallo earlier i agree like i think that, like it's a very giallo-esque murder what i do think is funny in the run-up to that is she gets a note where like christine goes back inside and she's a note that says to like blindfold yourself and then come back to bed and i looked yeah. at it and i was like if that was me and i had to do that in that order i could not count on myself to do that in sequence without doing myself an injury sure sure <laughs> And, and immediately, like, like, think, like, I do not have the spatial aware. I, I, do, like, I do not have the spatial awareness to make myself make my way safely back to my bedroom. I'd love that, Mitch. You do <laughs> it all back to front. You do it fucking ass over tit. You just be like, right, okay, I've got, to, I've got to put a blindfold on, then have a shower. Wait, how do I do this? Yeah, like, I've got fucking soap in my my ear. Like, Mitch, yeah. you, you can. Yeah, what was, like, yeah, you forget. You forget the order. Yeah, there's no way, Mitch. You could wangle this. Uh, I've seen you operate. Like there is, there's no iteration of that for me that doesn't end with me in accident and emergency. But, Just like a broken bone. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, ultimately, I, and I think that like it's important because I think that this this very ambitious sequence exists where it does for a reason because it marks this very obvious gear shift tonally into what has been up to this point this very measured erotic thriller into this fast-paced murder mystery right well well the, the, that also kind of, you know he's he's split screening with this like beautiful ballet you know and at a certain point i think the detectives are like you know of course you know she, she could know what happened in the ballet without having been there the whole time because everybody knows that ballet you know which is kind of the palma making a comment on thrillers you know sure. it's yeah. like everybody thinks that they can spell these you know that they can figure these things out but he throws a lot of monkey wrenches into that and that sequence is that monkey wrench mm-hmm. yeah, know, because yeah. it is it is all this big orchestration you know which i think is really fun you know like i, I love that i love that stuff like i had really enjoyed this film up to this point i kind of feel like up to this, this point i really respond to where it ultimately oh, heads okay. for mm-hmm. because uh lucky when we were kind of like very heavily in lockdown um Mm -hmm. me and andy and andy's wife jackie did this thing on zoom where we kind of just started doing this thing called smoky thriller fridays (laughs) which is where we would where we would burrow around netflix to find uh something that looked kind of like vaguely steamy but with the accent on thrilling and Mm -hmm. netflix netflix is an absolute goldmine for that kind of content i must say oh yeah oh yeah like having had to dig for suggestions when we were choosing what we we're doing, and up to this point, I was like, "This feels like a high class Smoky Thriller Fridays like selection." Mitch, this is know? comfortably yeah. the most accomplished Smoky Thriller that we've ever done. <laughs> yeah, but I think it, I think it I think it fits the mold kind of snugly, or at least it does until the hour mark, and then at this point where we where we, where we shift into this kind of this who done it, where it goes all knives out on us. I think that it's really interesting. <laughs> I had my list of suspects. I had how I thought it played out. And I'm quite happy to admit that this on the route to figuring out who did it and how it played out wrong-footed me a couple of times. Yeah, and I mean, the, the way he uses the sleeping pills, you know, as a way to think, you know, it's like, wow, all this anxiety and, you know, these these crazy dreams she's having and stuff must have something to do with these pills. She's suddenly popping, you know, um, and then you find out yeah. they're just sugar. 
<laughs> you know and then the reason she's having all that anxiety and all those nightmares and, and and everything is because of what she's been up to which is which is really cool you know he's making you look at something and interpret it you know in, in a way that you think you've got it figured out and then he turns it around on you in the end and it's totally ridiculous all of it is totally ridiculous and like you said it's all in the name of entertainment which i think is is great yeah i totally agree i think that like this is the kind of thing in a lot of the plot machinations um of where this ends up because i mean like we'll get to it but in the last 20 minutes of this i mean this ventures into incredibly ridiculous territory and i think that Absolutely. in the hands of like uh um a lesser film and a lesser filmmaker i would just dismiss this out of hand but by the time it gets there it feels like i'm not going to say that it feels like earned but i'm so ready for it when it happens <laughs> yeah 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 and that bonkers dream sequence towards the end you know at the, at the very end it's just totally insane you know but it functions the way dreams function which is great Femme Fatale does a lot of that as well like the way the brain makes connections to things that aren't necessarily based in reality sure. you know yeah uh, it's, it's, it's like an it's like an emotional reality for the benefit of anyone that is listening that hasn't seen this should we try and pick apart exactly how the third act machinations play out um, I don't think there's value in that. I think there's some key points, Mitch, that you have to hit. Okay. And uh, aside ahead, from man. that, very little. Uh, let's break it down. Immediately, Isabel is a suspect. She is taken to prison, pretty much right to prison, because her entire case hinges on the fact that she owns a scarf. After that fact, everything that goes on from this point kind of hinges on the fact that she owns a scarf. From a legal perspective, <laughs> totally. it's quite a flimsy case. Yeah, but it's it's so visual, you know. Like it's such a great device. There's some incredible yeah. stuff here, like we said, visually in terms of the uh, in terms of the way people are lit and that real kind of noirish investigatory quality. Uh, it introduces us to an absolute prick of a prosecutor and quite a weird lead investigator. I mean, personally, I would report him if uh, he was the chief inspector, kind of investigator on a case that I was the lead suspect of, and then he, what well, seems like, fell in love with me and started delivering me flowers on the regular. <laughs> yeah, it's so strange, yeah. It's so strange, he's such a sweet guy, but again, you know, that's, I think that's that's the poem of playing with conventions. Maybe you know that's what I mean? happens like, in okay. Germany. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like... like... <laughs> Yeah, maybe it's like a cultural language barrier. <laughs> That's why it doesn't make sense to us. That is what is expected of a German investigator when they wrongly accuse someone of a crime. Every five, six days, they have to drop off a new bouquet of flowers to replace the previous ones that have inevitably died in the last five or six days. And that goes on ad infinitum. Yeah. yeah. Um. <laughs> the last time he does it, it's, it's part of a dream, though. Well, sure, sure, so, sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, um, I was I was trying to watch this and take notes, and the uh, the division of dream and reality started to throw me for a loop in an enormous way. Absolutely, as this as this gets towards ending, like I, like I, like I think that I managed to make the distinctions ultimately. But there is there is so much of this um, in the later part that is people waking from nightmares, specifically Numi the Bass waking from nightmares. There's no one else waking from yeah. nightmares, Mitch. No, it's like 100 percent her. Like, <laughs> yeah, and that that gets that gets easier to kind of sort out the more you watch the film. I mean, I've you know over since the film came out i've probably seen it 10 times you you start to you start to kind of you know see where those divisions between reality and, and, and dream are and it's really fun i can 100 percent guarantee this will not be my last watch of this oh, i'll no. say that much no I'm, i might watch it again tonight because i feel like i missed so much and not taken yeah 
yeah there's 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 a lot going on there you know and it's it's again you know, what i love about the later films of great directors is they're casually great at so many things that are really tough for the rest of us <laughs> you know uh True. just the, the way True. they the way they build a shot the way they build you know uh, the way they use color you know he uses color as like a weapon in this movie down to the use of red uh as she's trying to seduce Numi into her her hive or whatever you want to call it sure. uh which is really fun you know little things like the you you know like the scene where they go to like watch the watch the uh the girls displaying the shoes on the stage oh, yeah. and that girl just busts her ass that's <laughs> really funny stage. yeah <laughs> also yeah. when that guy yeah. was talking the kind of guy who's like you, you don't you only see him peripherally but as soon as i heard them i thought ha, that's bruno oh yeah <laughs> oh boy yeah ultimately dirt goes down for the murder of christine sure yeah uh, I, I, think, I was going to say I don't feel like Dirk did an enormous amount wrong. That's that's not right. He just didn't kill anybody. He's still a bad guy. Sure. Okay. Yeah. That doesn't mean. Yeah. It doesn't mean he should go to prison for the rest of his life. He's he's an awful person. But yeah. But like yeah, I, I, I still feel like the punishment is disproportionate. <laughs> like it doesn't fit the yeah. crime. But yeah, he goes down for it, and then we get this kind of debrief sequence between um, Isabel and Danny, sure. our assistant, which uh-huh. I think would like in a lot of films play it as being the kind of the end sequence to this rather than it throwing another layer of intrigue and blackmail on top of multiple layers of intrigue and blackmail <laughs> oh man does yeah. it ever like to- totally yeah totally like, absurd it's so good like i uh, like, uh, like i mean this film could, like if this film would just end there it could have come in 80 minutes and i'm not saying that it's a weaker film for it because i think the way it goes to is far better sure 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 but this is all dependent on whether or not whether she's willing to put her life on hold to fall in love with danny yeah because i mean like we learn at this point that isabel has basically she's framed Dirk for the murder in this very long form way that involved orchestrating and fabricating her own mental breakdown it's brilliant. but i i must admit honestly like i mean i had i had in mind like three or four different iterations of how i thought this would end the one that it lands on was smarter and more unexpected than any of the various ones that i had in the chamber <laughs> Break it down, um, Mitch. Break it down. So the entire time, Isabel has been meticulously constructing her alibi. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For this eventual murder, uh, Danny has been operating outside that, surveying it, and she has uh, filmed all the stuff, and she's compiled it into what she describes as being a very incriminating album. Yeah, like uh, yeah. Chocolate Factory by R. Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> That's so wrong. Oh, I love it. <laughs> and just just down to like her saying i've got all this evidence on this little phone and all i have to do is hit this little button that phone is not made yeah, to handle yeah, that kind that of works. technology right but her toe hitting the button at the end is so clutch i love that so funny yeah again all with a sense of humor you know i think that De palma's films they seem so atmospheric and so serious that i think a lot of people misinterpret that there's you know there's a tremendous sense of humor underneath oh, all of it what you're saying about the sense of humor about this being, being kind of overlooked kind of speaks to the critical reception to this because i mean like because like i knew nothing about this before you suggested it lucky like we were saying and so but i did like kind of like just give myself a little bit of uh i ran my eye over the critical response to this because i had to figure out whether or not this film qualified for the format you know and i looked at it and just got a general read on the consensus and now i haven't seen the film it's like yeah people took this way too seriously it's plagued the palma his entire career that that, that that people don't pick up on the fact that there's a heavy layer of satire to everything he does uh-huh. he, he's, he satirizes 
cinema himself society all of these different things there's there there is that sense of humor and there is that you know everything's kind of a send-up in a De Palma movie in, in a way the only explanation that i can really land on for this getting the kind of mixed to negative critical reception that it did is that people did kind of miss that strand and they also bring the baggage of everything he's done before you know and yeah. if it doesn't hit you know with with a lot of filmmakers they evolve and and they age you know their interests change you know as they age what's interesting to them it gets it gets harder as you get older to make films uh because you're always trying to push yourself into new areas but at the same time you try to lean on your strengths but you also try to like take a stab at stuff that you might perceive yourself being weak at and and a lot of times filmmakers can start to make their stuff can get over complicated or or over bloated, like not as tight, you know, their movies start to get kind of loose. But it was just cool to see like such a tight film, you know, and that's why Scorsese amazes me, you know, the guy's still making fucking masterpieces, like one after the other, you know, mm-hmm. you know, he's celebrated and gets these giant budgets, but De Palma's, you know, making these smaller films in Europe now, and kind of winding down. There's still mean, so like, there's just so much so much to be learned, <laughs> you know. Well, I mean, like I, I would say, like this, uh, having seen both now, like this is a far more compelling watch for me than the irishman was okay interesting yeah yeah yeah, yeah. different I love different that. beasts for sure but like you know if you're talking about like late stages and like otters careers i would say that like i would say that this feels way more like somebody doing something new and exciting kind of bracing rather than somebody leaning into what's comfortable like i think like this feels way more adventurous and way more compelling to me yeah that's yeah. that's a whole other conversation i love both i love love both films deeply same you know? same 100 I mean, percent <laughs> In Scorsese's case, I think the overlooked film in recent years is actually Silence, which is one of his greatest films. Oh, yeah. Um, right. Here you go. But again, that's that's all. Scorsese, Scorsese's a big, <laughs> a big conversation. I think he's the greatest the greatest director that's ever lived. We, um, we can we can save it for another time. Andy, I detected yeah. a hint of humor when you just said Hugo, but I think Hugo is incredible. I, I wasn't that's joking. Beautiful. I think Hugo's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. It's gorgeous. But the way that this ultimately resolves itself is through, as the kind of film, or certainly a third act of it, has kind of defined itself through a couple of dream sequences um, and some surrealism and an appearance of the identical twin that's been seated earlier. Sure, yeah. yeah. But ultimately, what we have here is Isabel exonerated for the murder of Christine, waking from a nightmare with a dead Danny at the foot of her bed. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is honestly like about as strong a final, both a final shot and a kind of final plot note as you could land on. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of like, you know, it's like it's like a lot of the central conflict in the movie has resolved itself, but she has this entire other thing now. Yeah. And yeah. I think that like, and I think that the entire way that the third act sees that and builds on it and stuff, it feels kind of earned for that to be the operative thing when the story reaches its end for us. Yeah, and it's 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 also just you know it's it's a very it's a very classic sort of thing with with a lot of these with these films where you know you may have gotten away with it, but you're doomed anyway. You know. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, man. I would have quite really, happily really cool. watched another hour of this where she tries to convince a flower-toting <laughs> detective to help her hide like the body. More, she has like ten more <laughs> dream sequences and interrogations. Yeah. Yeah. Like so, what we all need is the four-hour cut of this. Yeah. But hurrying back, yeah. our partner's till the end. It's a testament to a filmmaker like staying. You know, Tarantino talks about the filmmakers kind of losing their gas when they get past sixty, which I think is a total crock of shit. Sure. You know? yeah. Uh, yeah. Bullshit. But uh, in this, you have a film that's it's fucking tight. 
man. You know, yeah. like a lot, a lot of filmmakers when they do get older, like I said, they do get loose, you know, their films get longer and, you know, James Cameron's a perfect example. You know, you look at how tight <laughs> it, the Terminator and aliens are, you know, and then everything that comes after that just gets like bigger and more bloated and, you know, like they forget how to like be hard enough on themselves yeah. to like be a brutal editor. You know? For someone who's not 60, I think Quentin Tarantino's got cheek because I think, I, I would even, I would throw Once Upon a Time oh, his in Hollywood. Stuff, his stuff is all, is all, and it's all, yeah, it's all indulgence. Yeah, you know? his, yeah. whole, his whole thing I is think indulgence. For know? him to make that yeah. comment, I think, is quite rich. It's, I, I think, I actually think it's, it's disrespectful more than anything. He, he's got a healthy ego, to put it mildly. <laughs> he sure does, Lucky. <laughs> he sure does. <laughs> I think also this is kind of making me wonder if this conversation is more about which brand of directorial indulgence is more your flavor because like i can't hack james cameron but i love quentin tarantino so now i'm wondering if yeah it's like, uh, yeah yeah totally totally, totally yeah, I, I agree i'll still watch anything quentin tarantino puts out but i'll be fucked if i'm standing in line to watch avatar 2 or 3 it's all three <laughs> yeah, it's, or not, four. it's de- yeah, definitely not on my most anticipated no. list no, fuck no but we, we are done on passion at this point andy first watch for you as it was for me. What was your take on this? It's kind of made me reevaluate my opinion on certainly later Day to Palma. Like, I don't, I mean, I don't know why I have this kind of block with De Palma because I don't have it with a lot of other directors. Like, we talked about Scorsese. My favorite director is Cronenberg. I certainly don't have it with Cronenberg. Like, I'll watch anything he puts out, whether it's good or bad. And yeah. Mitch, I know we've talked before in our kind of opinions of Cosmopolis and The Dangerous Method and uh, Maps to the Stars, but I don't know why for me De Palma seems to have fallen into this black hole because I, I had a great time with this. I thought it was an absolute hoot and we talked earlier about these erotic thrillers from the late 80s and early 90s. This fits in nicely, but it was just made 20 years later and it, yeah, it's w- w- yeah. exactly what Lucky said. We need more of that. It's weird that it stopped. There's very few of them. Like I can't, off the top of my head, I can't really think of another uh, another erotic thriller that's kind of come out in the, the the last few years. Yeah, I, I had a great time with this. I thought it was silly. I thought it was interesting, cool. It wrong-footed me a few times, which I was surprised by. And on the surface, it might be weird and it might seem daft, but I quite enjoyed it. There was a lot in this that I really responded to. I knew very little about this going in, apart from the critical reception, and I think that I understand a little bit more about that off the back of this conversation. Obviously, like I'm coming into this having seen a lot less Brian De Palma movies than both of you. As a self-contained erotic thriller, I think that it doesn't really put much of a foot wrong. Yeah, that's great to hear. That's great to hear. I'm glad you guys dug it. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky, before we stop, I feel like we should talk a little bit about Kindred Spirits. Yeah. Oh, boy. Um, uh, so this has just landed on Netflix in the UK so uh, most of our listeners now have a very clear platform to check this out I saw it at Fright Fest last year oh cool I wish um, I could have gone. I love that festival. Seeing it on that screen was amazing. But um, I love the film, but just uh, for anyone that knows nothing about it, just want to talk a little bit about the entire project. It was it was a really small movie that I, you know, I, it was, I was getting towards the end of that, that year that I made it, and uh, I had a chance to go shoot it in Austin, Texas. It was a script by an old, one of my oldest friends uh, in the filmmaking world who I've known since I was like 17 years old, this fellow Chris Sievertson. We made mm-hmm. a movie called All Cheerleaders Die Together, and mm-hmm. I've always helped each other. I've produced some stuff for him and we've always just, you know, we're like brothers, you know, and he had this script set up at this company and I was friends with the producer there and, you know, it was getting towards the end of the year and I really wanted to make a movie. Um, 
even even a really small movie. I said, I know you guys are making like six movies at the end of the year. This company he this producer worked at just churned them out, usually for the Lifetime Network, which is this 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 network we have here. Do you know the Lifetime Network? Yeah, it kind was, of kind of vaguely familiar. Yeah, it's like a it's a geared towards geared towards women, and they they make a lot of stuff like my mom is sleeping with my you know boyfriend type type <laughs> movies, like really. <laughs> really sleazy you know like 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 b movies they just crank them out and uh this producer and i became really good friends and we were both very enamored with 80s and 90s thrillers the mid-range thrillers the studios used to crank out like single white female and whatnot and black widow movies like that sure um and i said you know do you have you know do you have i know you guys are gonna make stuff do you have any scripts that you think i might be right for and he goes i have one written by chris and i read chris's script chris cranks out a lot of scripts so this is one that i hadn't read and i just i was just like oh man i know exactly how to do this and it was like the fastest i ever got set up to make a movie it was okay. like within a within like a few weeks you know we were already location scouting and we just cranked out it was like a four hundred thousand dollar budget really really small movie um just went to austin and just you know crank this little thing out it was really fun Amazing. we only had 15 days to shoot it wow um so uh but i had a really good smart fast dp uh it was really fun to work with caitlin stacy again you know she got mm-hmm. to chew a lot of scenery <laughs> in that movie but yeah you know it was just it was just a good clean fun time you know and it was just fun to make something where i i never had to put my hands on the script because i just loved my friend's script and i i, I can see a lot more into his writing than than sure somebody sure. that would just walk off the street you know i get his sense of humor you know uh, we're obviously both big the palma fans so there's definitely some homages in there and uh right. yeah it was just a fun movie it was fun to have three strong female leads you know i thought it was great it was one of my favorites at the festival that year um oh, thank you uh, no i'm like i'm i'm excited that people have a platform to check it out kind of like in a more convenient way over here now as well yeah because is it I, called I, kindred spirits over there yeah. because i remember i remember at a certain point it was going to be called kindred killers like, oh. it was like this oh. thing that came up for the europe european market and oh i was my. like what does that even mean <laughs> oh no that's awful no um uh no it's I'm glad, it's i'm glad they kept the title yeah it's 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 made it over here as kindred spirits <laughs> lucky yeah. you wouldn't be the first guest on this show who has come on not knowing whether or not their film has had a grievous title change across the atlantic Oh gosh, I know, uh, I know. So, and they're they're this, this that that company just put zero effort into anything too. I mean, their artwork was really lame. And mm. My wife painted me a gorgeous. I'll, I'll email it to you guys. She painted me a gorgeous one sheet for it. Speaking yeah. about Vanessa's paintings, like uh, Arrow Video just put out an absolutely amazing version of the woman. Yes. Well, after the fact, which I mean, I I saw it at Fright Fest and I absolutely loved it, and then I saw it again at Grimfest and I, I sang it to the heavens at the time. And uh, it's just oh, really lovely to have it now in such a, a kind of comprehensive version uh, with Offspring it as well. It was so cool. fun. Um, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's really it's really great to see that. Yeah, it was really cool because the shop I work in here in El Paso, we've got, you know, my sound designer works in here and my editor and we've got a full color correction suite that's kind of built up over the last few years here. Um, we all work out of the same shop in this warehouse district but we got to do all the remastering here and we put together all the extra features i feel like physical media is 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 not gonna might not be around for very long it's gonna become kind of a boutique thing like vinyl um yeah sure. uh, as, as time goes on uh and there's a lot of us that we really like to put movies on our shelves you know Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was just like, this might be the last chance this thing ever has to get released in physical form. We really want to just like do it up. So I like pulled out all these, 
all the behind the scenes footage my dad had shot on set and you know we just we just kind of we threw everything at it you know and remastered it in 4k and everything so and and my wife getting to do the artwork was just was just that's awesome yeah it's so cool (laughs) do you have any idea what's next like for me well if if the if the country is not on fire i'm gonna start shooting a movie in mid mid january Um, it's a project based on a play it's a two-character piece single location um it's kind of perfect for this world we're living in now. It's very yeah. contained, but it's big in, in other ways. We cast uh, this fellow Stephen Lang in the lead. All right, okay. From Avatar. <laughs> so he'll hear me trash talking Avatar on this podcast. <laughs> he ever listen to it. it was also in Don't um, But uh, yeah, it's Stephen Lang and Mark, another this other actor, Mark Center, who I've known for years, who was oh, cool. in a film okay. called The, Law, the Lost that, that my, my friend Chris made. Um, so two of those guys. So I'm going to shoot that crank that guy out hopefully at the beginning of the year um but there's all these protocols and you know it's it's going to be a trip to try to direct a movie um, under these under these circumstances but thankfully it's one one thing that's cool about is that 90 percent of it's is going to be on a a stage on a sound stage um, stage. okay okay which is so fun you know to be able to work that way the control you have so much more control you know and you know you're working on a set where you can move the walls or the ceiling and you can do a lot more stuff with the camera than Shooting on location, which we do a lot in, in independent film. So yeah, I'm doing that. And then I have a bigger project that I've, I've just, you know, I've, I've spent my whole year writing. It was kind of always intended to be my, my follow-up film to May that I just kind of held in my pocket until I had the right situation to make okay. it to where I could kind of protect it that I'm really excited about. It's, it's like one of those movies that you, you want to make before you die sort of thing. Oh, Control but, yourself, um, Mitch. Then, <laughs> very very excited very excited about it. I don't, it when i say it's supposed to be a follow-up to may it's not like a, it, it doesn't have anything to do with may it was just the no. film that i always kind of hoped that i would make as my second film yeah like a natural so, successor uh, to it kind of thing yeah so 20 okay. years later i'll be making my <laughs> second film as That's i always exciting. wanted to <laughs> which is really cool yeah i'm very excited about that one awesome so i just okay, gotta cool. I, I have to get the i have to get the, the script cut down that this the first draft came out 260 pages long Jesus. So oh, okay. I, have, I have a little bit a little, little little bit of editing to do okay <laughs> uh lucky that I, I can't tell you how nice it's been to have you on the show um we've talked to, we've talked a little bit i'm kind of made light of the fact that i haven't seen enough stuff may was uh kind of a little bit of an indie horror kind of gateway drug for me yeah oh great like um i i'd been into horror for a little while but i just kind of been watching what kind of major studios were throwing my way and um one of the first things that kind of piqued my curiosity about i guess kind of yeah just indie horror and and like on that kind of scale was may i came across it in an article of like the best naughty horror movies that you might not have seen and i just kind of went down (laughs) that road and um yeah there's a strong possibility that i wouldn't be doing a lot of the stuff that i'm doing just now if i hadn't checked that film out and it's really nice to have a chance to just say thank you for that as well like uh like it's it's in my halloween rotation every year and all that kind of thing uh so yeah it's really cool thing to have you i'd say if you listen to 15 episodes at random of this show mitch will talk about me and at least a third of those that's probably oh man that's awesome that's so sweet of you to say i really appreciate it (laughs) thank you thank you so much for doing this lucky it's brilliant good to talk to you guys have a good evening So, Mitch, that was uh, that was kind of a big one for you. 
Yeah, it was. Um, and I gotta say, it was a great time. It was all I dreamed and more. <laughs> so you've really had a lot of your kind of dream guests now. You've had Bria Grant, you've had Lucky, you've had a bunch of people, really. So uh, I just want to say right now, I'm putting it out there, putting it into the ether. You know they say, visualise the things you want and they'll come to you? Sure. <laughs> yep. Travis Stevens, I'm coming for you. Elijah Wood, I can, I know your eyes are widening somewhere, but I am coming for you. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I would say. I mean, like, I'm on board with both of those suggestions. As oh, well. are you? Are you just, just those? Right, that's fine. Oh, also, Barbara Crampton, hear my voice through the ether. I'm also coming for you. Uh, we are out for another one. A huge thank you to Lucky McKee for Amazing. joining us tonight to talk Brian De Palma's passion. I hope you guys check the film out. It's a real curiosity piece, wow. I think. It's it's ba- absolutely baffling. It's on Amazon Prime in the UK, so there's no excuse for not really checking it out. Like it's it's really quite something, and it's I've got to be honest, man. It, it, it ranks quite highly in amongst the mad shit that we've done. It's probably I wouldn't say it's up there with the things like uh, the knife configuration and cruising and things like that, but it's not far off that weird pile yeah you're talking fringes of the five i would say here certainly in terms of like the really interesting things that people have chosen however we're done for another one shit fucking hell man do you know do you know what this means go on we're closing in on december man like it's almost the festive season it's almost time for the festive strong language and violence scenes theme yeah we're heading towards that time it's time to dust that off also we're kind of hoping that we'll be able to do the christmas episode in person although that seems to be getting less and less likely as time goes on i've got to be honest man see even if we need to do it in the garden right of this house and the listeners can hear our teeth chittering in the cold i would rather do that than do it over zoom i would rather be i would rather we put a tv in the garden or a big sheet up and projected a film into the garden and then talked about it in person across a garden than i would rather do it in this format this format's fine it served as well to be able to see you across a garden and throw a stick at you is, is what Christmas is about for me. I mean, like, yeah, like, what Christmas has come and gone without you throwing a stick at me? Honestly, honestly, like, my Christmas isn't complete until I've bombarded you with bricks or rocks uh, from, <laughs> from variable distance. Uh, so so I, I genuinely hope we can do that. And coming into December, I'm really... really hoping that things will be lifted in such a way that we can add you into our domestic bubble yeah that feels like a very small request at the end of a torrid year yeah yeah just let us have it however for now we're done we will be back though on monday with another minisode for your ears we will be digging once again into andy's nature gone wild side quest we'll be talking about what we've been watching we'll be taking a look at your feedback we'll be playing Mitch's pictures we'll letting you know everything that you need to know for next week's episode if you want to get in touch between now and then you can loads of platforms for you to do that facebook and instagram are strong language violent scenes you can tweet us as well at strong violent pc and you can email strong language violent scenes at gmail.com and don't forget, you can interact with other listeners on our Facebook group, The Toad Locker. Yeah, absolutely you can. And, in case you've got any doubts, we are on Patreon. I know you were all sitting thinking, do you think these guys have got a Patreon? Because I'd like to <laughs> put some money into that. We do have a Patreon. And uh, yeah, it's all happening over there. We've got stuff coming in the next few days. If you are on one of the higher tiers of Patreon, one of those insane people that gives us loads of money every month, then you might find some uh, interesting things coming your way very shortly. Always working on the stuff for that. Stay tuned. We'll be back on Monday. Join us then if you can. In the meantime, don't forget, it is better to die a hero than live as food in a world of chuds. Goodbye. Bye, guys. We love you very much. 
You've been listening to Strong Language and Violent Scenes with Andy Stewart and Mitch Bain. Strong Language and Violent Scenes theme by Mitch Bain. Production and artwork by Andy Stewart. Find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Podbean.